17. Were story, and this arrangement still exists, and you can still admire the picturesque ivy-clad tower, the wards with coffee and looks at either end and cubicles down the middle, the roof decorated with eagles, deemed to be the cognizance of Queen Anne of Bohemia, wife of Richard I.I., the quaint little cloister, and above all, the excellent management of this grand institution, the old man's hospital, as it is called, which provides for the necessities of 150 old folk, whose wants are cared for by a master and 12 nurses, let us travel far and visit another charming arms house, Abbott's Hospital, at Guilford, which is an architectural gem and worthy of the closest inspection, it was founded by Archbishop Abbott in 1619, and is a noble building of mellowed brick with finely carved oak doors, graceful chimneys with their curious, curl rests, noble staircases, interesting portraits, and rare books, amongst which is a vinegar Bible, the chapel with its Flemish windows showing the story of Jacob and Esau, and old carvings and Amsbach dated 1619, is especially attractive, here the founder retired in sadness and sorrow after his unfortunate days hunting in Bramshield Park, where he accidentally shot a keeper, an incident which gave occasion to his enemies to blaspheme and deride him, here the Duke of Monmouth was confined on his way to London after the Battle of Sedgemoor, the details of the building are worthy of attention, especially the ornament doors and doorways, the elaborate latches, beautifully designed and furnished with a spring, and elegant casement fasteners. Guilford must have had a school of great artists of these window fasteners. Near the hospital there is a very interesting house, number 25 High Street, now shop, but formerly the town clerk's residence and the lodgings of the judges of Assize. No better series in England of beautifully designed window fasteners can be found than in this house. Erected in 1683, it also has a fine staircase like that at Farnham Castle, and some good plaster ceilings resembling Inigo Jones's work and probably done by his workmen. The good town of Obingdon has a very celebrated hospital founded in 1446 by the Guild of the Holy Cross, a fraternity composed of good men and true, wealthy merchants and others, which built the bridge repaired roads, maintained a bridge priest and a rude priest, and held a great annual feast at which the brethren consumed as much as six calves, sixteen lambs, eighty capons, eighty geese, and eight hundred eggs. It was a very munificent and beneficent corporation, and erected these almshouses for thirteen poor men and the same number of poor women. That hospital founded so long ago still exists. It is a curious and ancient structure in one story, and is denoted Christ's Hospital. One of our recent writers on Berkshire topography, whose historical accuracy is a little open to criticism, gives a good description of the building. It is a long range of chambers built of mellow brick and immemorial oak, having in their center a small hall, darkly wainscoted, the very table in which makes a collector sinfully covetous. In front of the modest doors of the chambers inhabited by almsmen and almswomen runs a tiny cloister with oak pillars, so that the inmates may visit one another drishot in any weather. Each door, Two. There is a text from the Old or New Testament, a more typical relic of the Old World, a more sequestered haven of rest, than this row of lowly buildings, looking up to the great church in front, and with its windows opening onto green turf bordered with flowers in the rear, it could not enter into the heart of man to imagine. Highways and byways in Berkshire, we could spend endless time in visiting the old almshouses in many parts of the country. There is the Ford's Hospital in Coventry. Erected in 1529, an extremely good specimen of late Gothic work, another example of which is found in St. John's Hospital at Rye, the Corsham Mums Houses in Wiltshire, 
erected in 1663, are most picturesque without, and contain some splendid woodwork within, including a fine old reading desk with carved seat in front. There is a large porch with an immense coat of arms over the door, in the region of the Cotswolds, where building stone is plentiful. We find a noble set of almshouses at Chipping Canton in Gloucestershire, a gabled structure near the church with tall, graceful chimneys and volume windows, having a raised causeway in front protected by a low wall. Ulmy, in Oxfordshire, is a very attractive village with a row of cottages half a mile long, which have before their door is a sparkling stream dammed here and there into a watercress beds. At the top of the street on a steep knoll stand church and school and almshouses of the mellowest 15th century bricks, as beautiful and structurally sound as the pious founders left them. These founders were the unhappy William de la Pole, first Duke of Suffolk, and his good wife the Duchess Alice. The Duke inherited Ulmy through his wife Alice Chaucer, a kinswoman of the poet, and, for love of her and the commodity of her lands fell much to dwell in Oxfordshire, and in 1430-40 was busy building a manor place of brick and timber and set within a fair moat, a church, an almshouse, and a school. The manor place, or palace, as it was called, has disappeared, but the almshouse and school remain, witnesses of the munificence of the founders, the poorer Duke favorite minister of Henry VI, was exiled by the Yorkist faction, and beheaded by the sailors on his way to banishment. Twenty-five years of widowhood fell to the bereaved duchess, who finished her husband's buildings, called the almshouses, God's house, and then reposed beneath one of the finest monuments in England in the church hard by. The almshouses at Audley and Essex, are amongst the most picturesque in the country. Such are some of these charming homes of rest that time has spared. The old people who dwell in them are often as picturesque as their habitations. Here you will find an old woman with her lace pillow and bobbins, spectacles on nose, and white bonnet with strings, engaged in working out some intricate lace pattern. In others you will see the inmates clad in their ancient liveries. The dwellers in the Coningsby Hospital at Hereford, founded in 1614 for old soldiers and aged servants, had a quaint livery consisting of a festion suit of ginger color of a soldier-like fashion, and seemly laced, a cloak of red cloth lined with red bays and reaching to the knees, to be worn in walks and journeys, and a gown of red cloth, reaching to the ankle, lined also with bays, to be worn within the hospital, they are, therefore, known as red coats, the almsmen of Ely and Rochester have cloaks, the inmates of the hospital of St. Cross wear as a badge a silver cross potent, at Bodeshford they have blue coats and blue, befeater, hats, and a silver badge on the left arm bearing the arms of the Rutland family a peacock in its pride, surmounted by a coronet and surrounded by a garter. It is not now the fashion to found almshouses. We build workhouses instead, vast ugly barracks wherein the poor people are governed by all the harsh rules of the poor law, where husband and wife are separated from each other, and those whom God hath joined together are, by man and the poor law put asunder, where the industrious laborer is housed with the lazy and ne'er-do-wheel. The old almshouses were better homes for the aged poor, homes of rest after the struggle for existence, and harbors of refuge for the tired and weary till they embark on their last voyage. Chapter XVI Vanishing Fairs The oldest inhabitants of our villages can remember many changes in the social conditions of country life. They can remember the hard time of the Crimean War when bread was two shillings and eight pence a gallon when food and work were both scarce, and starvation wages were doled out. They can remember the machine riots, and tumultuous scenes at election times, and scores of interesting facts, 
if only you can get them to talk and tell you their recollections, the changed condition of education puzzles them, they can most of them read, and perhaps write a little, but they prefer to make their mark and get you to attest it with the formula, the mark of J.N., their schooling was soon over, when they were nine years of age they were plowed boys, and had a rough time with a cantankerous plowman who often used to ply his whip on his lad or on his horses quite indiscriminately, they have seen many changes, and do not always, hold with, modern notions, and one of the greatest changes they have seen is in the fairs, they are not what they were, some, indeed, maintain some of their fullness, but most of them have degenerated into a form of mild Saturnalia, if not into a scandal and a nuisance, and for that reason have been suppressed, formerly quite small villages had their fairs, if you look at an old almanac you will see a list of fair days with the names of the villages which, when the appointed days come round, cannot now boast of the presence of a single stall or merry-go-round, the day of the fair was nearly always on or near the festival of the patron saint to whom the church of that village is dedicated, their island of course, a reason for this, the word, fair, is derived from the Latin word feria, which means a festival, the parish feast day, on the festival of the patron saint of a village church crowds of neighbors from adjoining villages would flock to the place, the inhabitants of which used to keep open house, and entertain all their relations and friends who came from a distance. They used to make booths and tents with boughs of trees near the church, and celebrated the festival with much thanksgiving and prayer. By degrees they began to forget their prayers and remembered only the feasting. Country people flocked from far and near, the peddlers and hawkers came to find a market for their wares. Their stalls began to multiply, and thus the germ of a fair was formed. In such primitive fairs the traders paid no toll or rent for their stalls but by degrees the right of granting permission to hold a fair was vested in the king, who for various considerations bestowed this favor on nobles, merchant guilds, bishops, or monasteries. Great profits arose from these gatherings. The traders had to pay toll on all the goods which they brought to the fair, in addition to the payment of stallage or rent for the ground on which they displayed their merchandise, and also a charge on all the goods they sold. Moreover, the tradesfolk of the town were obliged to close their shops during the days of the fair, and to bring their goods to the fair, so that the toll owner might gain good profit with all. We can imagine, or try to imagine, the roads and streets leading to the marketplace thronged with traders and shopmen, the sellers of ribbons and cakes, minstrels and Morris dancers, smock-frocked peasants and somber-clad monks and friars. Then a horn was sounded, and the lord of the manor, or the bishop's bailiff, or the mayor of the town proclaimed the fair, and then the cries of the traders, the music of the minstrels, the jingling of the bells of the Morris dancers, filled the air and added animation to the spectacle. There is a curious old gateway, opposite the fair ground at Smithfield, which has just recently narrowly escaped destruction, and very nearly became part of the vanished glories of England. Happily the donations of the public poured in so well that the building was saved. The Smithfield Gateway dates back to the middle of the 13th century. The entrance to the Priory of St. Bartholomew, founded by Rahir, the court jester of Henry I a century earlier. Everyone knows the story of the building of this priory, and has followed its extraordinary vicissitudes. The destruction of its nave at the dissolution of monasteries, the establishment of a fringe factory in the Lady Chapel, and the splendid and continuous work of restoration which has been going on during the last 40 years. We are thankful that the squire of Street Bartholomew's Church should have been preserved for future generations as an example of the earliest and most important ecclesiastical buildings in London.
but we are concerned now with this gateway, the beauty of which is partially concealed by the neighboring shops and dwellings that surround it, as a poor and vulgar frame may disfigure some matchless gem of artistic painting, its old stones know more about fairs than do most things, it shall tell its own history, you can still admire the work of the early English builders, the receding orders with exquisite moldings and dog to ornament the hallmark of the early Gothic artists, it looks upon the Smithfield market, and how many strange scenes of London history has this gateway witnessed, under its arch possibly stood London's first chronicler, Fitzstephen, the monk, when he saw the famous horse fairs that took place in Smithfield every Friday, which he described so graphically, thither flocked earls, barons, knights, and citizens to look on or buy, the monk admired the nags with their sleek and shining coats, smoothly ambling along, the young blood colts not yet accustomed to the bridle, the horses for burden, strong and stout-limbed, and the valuable chargers of elegant shape and noble height, with nimbly moving ears, erect necks, and plump haunches, he waxes eloquent over the races, the expert jockeys, the eager horses, the shouting crowds, the riders, inspired with the love of praise and the hope of victory, clap spurs to their flying horses, lashing them with their whips, and inciting them by their shouts, so wrote the worthy monk Fitzstephen. He evidently loved a horse race, but he need not have given us the startling information. Their chief aim is to prevent a competitor getting before them. That surely would be obvious even to a monk. He also examined the goods of the peasants, the implements of husbandry, swine with their long sides, cows with distended udders, corpora magna boom, lanagerum capequus, mares fitted for the plow or cart, some with frolicsome colts running by their sides, a very animated scene which must have delighted the young eyes of the stone arch in the days of its youth, as it did the heart of the monk. Still there seems the old gate has witnessed. Smithfield was the principal spot in London for jousts, tournaments, and military exercises, and many a grand display of knightly arms has taken place before this priory gate. In 1357 great and royal jousts were then holden in Smithfield, there being present the kings of England, France, and Scotland with many other nobles and great estates of divers lands, right Stowe. Gay must have been the scene in the 48th year of Edward III, when Dame Alice Purse, the king's mistress, as Lady of the Sunday rode from the Tower of London to Smithfield accompanied by many lords and ladies, every lady leading a lord by his horse bridle, and there began a great joust which endured seven days after. The lists were set in the great open space with tiers of seats around, a great central canopy for the Queen of Beauty the royal party, and divers tents and pavilions for the contending knights and esquires, it was a grand spectacle, adorned with all the pomp and magnificence of medieval chivalry, Frolisart describes with consummate detail the jousts in the 14th year of Richard I.I., before a grand company, when 60 coursers gaily apparelled for the jousts issued from the Tower of London ridden by esquires of honour, and then 60 ladies of honour mounted on palfreys, each lady leading a knight with a chain of gold, with a great number of trumpets and other instruments of music with them. On arriving at Smithfield the ladies dismounted, the esquires led the coursers which the knights mounted, and after their helmets were set on their heads proclamation was made by the heralds. The jousts began, to the great pleasure of the beholders, but it was not all pomp and pageantry. Many and deadly were the fights fought in front of the old gate, when men lost their lives or were borne from the field mortally wounded or contended for honor and life against unjust accusers, that must have been a sorry scene in 1446, when a rascally servant, John David, 
accused his master, William Catter, of treason, and had to face the wager of battle in Smithfield. The master was well beloved, and inconsiderate friends plied him with wine so that he was not in a condition to fight, and was slain by his servant, but Stowe reminds us that the prosperity of the wicked is frail. Not long after David was hanged at Tyburn for felony, and the chronicler concludes, let such false accusers note this for example, and look for no better end without speedy repentance. He omits to draw any moral from the intemperance of the master and the danger of drunkenness, but let this suffice for the jousts in Smithfield. The old gateway heard on one occasion strange noises in the church, Archbishop Boniface raging with oaths not to be recited, and sounds of strife and shrieks and angry cries. This foreigner, Archbishop of Canterbury, had dared to come with his armed retainers from Provence to hold a visitation of the Priory. The canons received him with solemn pomp, but respectfully declined to be visited by him, as they had their own proper visitor, a learned man, the Bishop of London, and did not care for another inspector. Boniface lost his temper, struck the sub-prior, saying, Indeed, doth it become you English traitors so to answer me? He tore in pieces the rich cope of the sub-prior, the canons rushed to their brother's rescue and knocked the archbishop down, but his men fell upon the canons and beat them and trod them underfoot. The old gateway was shocked and grieved to see the reverend canons running beneath the arch bloody and miry, rent and torn, carrying their complaint to the bishop and then to the king at Westminster, after which there was much contention, and the whole city rose and would have torn the archbishop into small pieces, shouting, Where is this ruffian? that cruel smiter, and much else that must have frightened and astonished Master Boniface and made him wish that he had never set foot in England, but stayed quietly in peaceful Provence. But the gateway loved to look upon the great fair that took place on the feast of St. Bartholomew. This was granted to array here the prior and to the canons and continued for seven centuries, until the abuses of modern days destroyed its character and ended its career. The scene of the actual fair was within the priory gates in the churchyard and there during the three days of its continuance stood the booths and standings of the clothiers and drapers of London and of all England, of pewterers, and leather sellers, and without in the open space before the priory were tents and booths and a noisy crowd of traders, pleasure seekers, friars, jesters, tumblers, and stilt walkers. This open space was just outside the turret north wall of the city, and was girt by tall elms and near it was a sheet of water whereon the London boys loved to skate when the frost came. It was the city playground, and the city gallows were placed there before they were removed to Tyburn. The dread implement of punishment stood under the elms where Cow Lane now runs, and one fair day brave William Wallace was dragged there in chains at the tails of horses, bruised and bleeding, and foully done to death after the cruel fashion of the age. All this must have aged the heart of the old gateway and especially the sad sight of the countless burials that took place in the year of the plague, 1349, when 50,000 were interred in the burial ground of the Carthusians, and few dared to attend the fair for fear of the pestilence. Other terrible things the gateway saw, the burning of heretics. Not infrequently did these fires of persecution rage. One of the first of these martyrs was John Bedley, a tailor, burnt in Smithfield in 1410. In Fox's Book of Martyrs you can see a woodcut of the burning of Enescue and others, showing a view of the priory and the crowd of spectators who watched the poor lady die. Not many days afterwards the fair folk assembled, while the ground was still black with her ashes, and dogs danced and women tumbled and the devil jeered in the miracle play on the spot where martyrs died. We should need a volume to describe all the sights of this wondrous fair. The church crowded with worshippers, 
the hall and sick praying for healing, the churchyard full of traitors, the sheriff proclaiming new laws, the young men bowling at nine pins, peddlers shouting their wares, players performing the miracle play on a movable stage, bands of pipers, lowing oxen, neighing horses, and bleeding sheep. It was a merry sight that medieval Bartholomew Fair, we still have cloth fair, a street so named, with a remarkable group of timber houses with oversailing stories and picturesque gables. It is a very dark and narrow thoroughfare, and in spite of many changes it remains a veritable pit of old London, as it was in the 17th century. These houses had sprung up where in olden days the merchants' booths stood for the sale of cloth. It was one of the great annual markets of the nation, the chief cloth fair in England that had no rival. Hither came the officials of the Merchant Tailors' Company bearing a silver yard measure, to try the measures of the clothiers and drapers to see if they were correct. And so each year the great fair went on, and priors and canons lived and died and were buried in the church or beneath the grass of the churchyard. But at length the days of the priory were numbered, and it changed masters. The old gateway wept to see the cloud black cannons depart when Henry VII dissolved the monastery, its heart nearly broke when it heard the sounds of axes and hammers, crowbars and saws, that work on the fabric of the church pulling down the grand nave, and it scowled at the new owner, Sir Richard Rich a prosperous political adventurer, who bought the whole estate for L1064 11S, 3D, and made a good bargain. The monks, a colony of black friars, came in again with Queen Mary, but they were driven out again when Elizabeth reigned, and Lord Rich again resumed possession of the estate, which passed to his heirs, the Earls of Warwick and Holland, each Sunday. However, the old gate welcomed devout worshippers on their way to the church the choir having been converted into the parish church of the district, and was not sorry to see in Charles's day a brick tower rising at the west end. In spite of the changes of ownership the fair went on increasing with the increase of the city, but the scene has changed. In the time of James I the last elm tree had gone, and rows of houses, fair and comely buildings, had sprung up. The old muddy plain had been drained and paved, and the traders and pleasure seekers could no longer dread the wading through a sea of mud. We should like to follow the fair through the centuries, and see the sights and shows, the puppet shows were always attractive, and the wild beasts, the first animal ever exhibited being, a large and beautiful young camel from Grand Cairo in Egypt, this creature is 23 years old, his head and neck like those of a deer, one flock during the last half of the 18th century was the prince of puppet showmen, and he called his puppets the Italian Fantosini, he made his figures work in a most lifelike style. He was a conjurer too, and the inventor of a wonderful clock which showed 900 figures at work upon a variety of trades. Punch and Judy always attracted crowds, and we notice the handbills of Mr. Robinson, conjurer to the Queen, and of Mr. Lane, who sings, It will make you to a laugh, it will drive away gloom, to see how the eggs will dance round the room, and from another right a bird there will fly, which makes all the company all for to cry, etc. The booths for actors were a notable feature of the fair. We read of Fielding's booth at the George Inn, of the performance of the Beggar's Opera in 1728, of Penketh Ben's theatrical booth when Watt Taylor and Jack Straw was acted, of the new opera called The Generous Freemason or The Constant Lady, of Jeff Fawes Rashbow, and countless other plays that saw the light at Bartholomew Fair. The audience included not only the usual frequenters of fairs, but even royal visitors, noblemen, and great ladies flocked to the booths for amusement, and during its continuance the playhouses of London were closed, 
I must not omit to mention the other attractions, the fireproof lady, Madame Girardelli, who put melted lead in her mouth, passed red-hot iron over her body, thrust her arm into fire, and washed her hands in boiling oil, Mr. Simon Pup, the Dutch dwarf, 28 inches high, bear dancing, the learned pig, the beautiful spotted negro boy, peep shows, Wimmel's royal menagerie, the learned cats, and a female child with two perfect heads, but it is time to bring down the curtain. The last days of the fair were not edifying. Scenes of riot and debauch, of violence and lawlessness disgraced the assembly. Its fullness as a gathering for trade purposes had passed away. It became a nuisance and a disgrace to a London. In older days the Lord Mayor used to ride in his grand coach to our old gateway, and there proclaim it with a great flourish of trumpets. In 1850 his worship walked quietly to the accustomed place and found that there was no fair to proclaim, and five years later the formality was entirely dispensed with, and silence reigned over the historic ground over which century after century the hearts of our forefathers throbbed with the outspoken joys of life. The old gateway, like many aged folk, has much on which to meditate in its advanced age. Many other fairs have been suppressed in recent years, but some survive and thrive with even greater vigor than ever. Some are hiring fairs, where you may see young men with whipcord in their caps standing in front of inns ready to be hired by the farmers who come to seek laborers, women and girls to come to be hired, but their number decreases every year, such as the Abingdon Fair, which no rustic in the adjoining villages ever thinks of missing. We believe that the Nottingham Goose Fair, which is attended by very large crowds, is also a hiring fair. Pleasure fairs in several towns and cities show no sign of diminished popularity. The famous Street Giles's Fair at Oxford is attended by thousands, and excursion trains from London, Cardiff, Reading, and other large towns bring crowds to join in the humors of the gathering. The shows covering all the broad space between Street Giles's Church and George Street, Reading Michaelmas Pleasure Fair is always a great attraction. The fairground is filled from end to end with roundabouts driven by steam, which also plays a hideous organ that grinds out popular tunes, swings, stalls shows, menageries, and all, the fun of the fair, you can see biographs, hear phonographs, and a penny in the slot will introduce you to a wonderful sights, and have your fortune told, or shy at coconuts or Aunt Sally, or witness displays of boxing, or have a photograph taken of yourself, or watch weird melodramas, and all for a penny or two, no wonder the fair is popular, there is no reverence paid in these modern gatherings to old-fashioned ways and ancient picturesque customs, but in some places these are still observed with punctilious exactness. The quaint custom of proclaiming the fair at Hunnetong, in Devonshire, is observed every year, the town having obtained the grant of a fair from the lord of the manor so long ago as 1257. The fair still retains some of the picturesque characteristics of bygone days. The town crier, dressed in old-world uniform, and carrying a pole decorated with gay flowers and surmounted by a large gilt model of a gloved hand, publicly announces the opening of the fair as follows, Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, the fair's begun, the glove is up, no man can be arrested till the glove is taken down, hot coins are then thrown amongst the children, the pole and glove remain displayed until the end of the fair, nor have all the practical uses of fairs vanished, on the Berkshire Downs is the little village of West Elsley, there from time immemorial great sheep fairs are held, and flocks are brought thither from districts far and wide. Every year herds of Welsh ponies congregate at Blackwater, in Hampshire, driven thither by inveterate custom. 
Every year in an open field near Cambridge the once great Sturbridge Fair is held, first granted by King John to the hospital for lepers, and formerly proclaimed with great state by the Vice-Chancellor of the University and the Mayor of Cambridge. This was one of the largest fairs in Europe. Merchants of all nations attended it. The booths were planted in a cornfield, and the circuit of the fair, which was like a well-governed city, was about three miles. All offenses committed therein were tried, as at other fairs, before a special court of pie powder, the derivation of which word has been much disputed, and I shall not attempt to conjecture or to decide. The shops were built in rows, having each a name, such as Garlic Row, Booksellers Row, or Cook's Row. There were the Cheese Fair, Hop Fair, Wood Fair, every trade was represented, and there were taverns, eating houses, and in later years playhouses of various descriptions. As late as the 18th century it is said that 100,000 pounds worth of woolen goods were sold in a week in one row alone, but the glories of Sturbridge Fair have all departed, and it is only a ghost now of its former greatness. The Stowe Green Pleasure Fair, in Lincolnshire, which has been held annually for upwards of 800 years, having been established in the reign of Henry III, has practically ceased to exist, held on an isolated common two miles from Billingborough. It was formerly one of the largest fairs in England for merchandise, and originally lasted for three weeks. Now it is limited to two days, and when it opened last year there were but few attractions. Fairs have enriched our language with at least one word. There is a fair at Ely founded in connection with the abbey built by St. Athelreda, and at this fair a famous fairing was St. Audrey's Laces. St. Audrey, or Athelreda in the days of her youthful vanity was very fond of wearing necklaces and jewels. St. Audrey's laces became corrupted into tawdry laces, hence the adjective has come to be applied to all cheap and showy pieces of female ornament. Trade now finds its way by means of other channels than fairs. Railways and telegrams have changed the old methods of conducting the commerce of the country. But, as we have said, many fairs have contrived to survive and unless they degenerate into a scandal and a nuisance it is well that they should be continued. Education and the increasing sobriety of the nation may deprive them of their more objectionable features, and it would be a pity to PR.